This is Fate's Wide Wheel, a Quantum Leap podcast with Sam and Dennis. Every week, we review an episode of the cult classic time travel series and decide whether it holds up to present day viewing. And hopefully, we'll entertain you along the way. Be sure to check us out on our website, fwwquantumleappod.com, and also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under Fate's Wide Wheel. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel. It's been a little bit. It's been two, three weeks since we recorded. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> our, our last episode, I should, I should apologize, uh, we recorded, I think, three weeks ago. Uh, however, it didn't actually drop until, you know, well over a week later, just because there's been so much going on. Sure. Um, and we were just talking off mic uh, about how much we wanted to disclose or whatever, but just, you know, in the interest of full disclosure and because I feel like at this particular point in time for us as human beings, the more we share, the better off we're going to be. Sure. Um, but, uh, my father's been in the hospital for well over a month for non COVID related reasons. Um, it's looking like he's probably not going to be leaving the long term care facility that he's in right now. Um, and then my grandmother died, which had not necessarily been shocking. Um, but, uh, you know, still incredibly sad and, and difficult for the family. Um, my grandfather who is 100 years old was diagnosed with COVID-19 on the very same day that his wife of 72 years died. Oh, wow. Um, and then my sister was diagnosed with COVID-19, um, uh, less than a week, uh, or no, I guess it was a little over a week after. Oh no, you didn't um, tell me that. Yeah. So miraculously, uh, in, in some ways, in some accounts, my grandfather is recovering just fine. Um, so he is going to, uh, continue his journey as he uh, has has already surpassed a century of life. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister seems to be doing um, fairly well. She was pretty wiped out for about four or five days straight, um, but it, it sounds like you know the the worst of it is is over for her as well. So that's very good. Something to be thankful for. Um, you know, with my dad and everything, there's so much to figure out for any of our listeners who've ever had to deal with a parent who is you know, kind of going on to another stage, if you will, and, 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 and starting to, you know, not be 100% with it anymore. Um, I'm sure you know how, how difficult it can be. And so there's just a lot of things to figure out, you know, on top of all of that, both my wife and I are, you know, still Chicago is still shelter in place. So we're still at home, um, working from home. Our daughter is at home with us. Um, you know, we've we've made the choice not to send her back to daycare, uh, in spite of my wife being considered an essential worker, um, just because it's you know it's some sort of peace of mind, and I've been enjoying the extra time with her, uh, but it's been a lot, and it's been very stressful. Um, so that that's that's my reason for for not having been around much. Dennis, you have your reasons too. <laughs> I have mine. Uh, yeah. So we, um, you know, we're sheltering place here in Chicago. Uh, my wife's work has been very busy. Um, I haven't had any work. We've been keeping Harrison home 
from daycare. That's going to change this week. We're going to be sending him back to daycare uh, to get some normalcy back into his life because we were talking off mic beforehand. Um, he thrives in daycare. He loves daycare. And um, I have loved all the extra time that I've gotten to spend with him at home. But it, it, you can tell that, it, that it's having an effect on him. And with baby number two coming on the way any minute now, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, trying to get some normalcy back into his life. Um, ask me at any given moment how I feel about sending him back to daycare. Um, that flips flops back and forth. Um, so that's going on. Um, I have classes going on right now. I'm doing a remote course for, uh, software engineering coding. And also I had COVID a couple of weeks ago. Now I had a very mild case. I was sick for two days and the symptoms that I had did not match the symptoms that they were saying at the time. So I did not think that was it. Mm-hmm. By the time I got tested, I was pretty much recovered except for the lingering cough. And I only got tested because Betsy's prenatal team suggested it. Sure. Betsy got tested. She's negative. Our son, uh, we never had him tested, but he is never, he has not shown any symptoms at all. So, yeah. Um, Hopefully it is just it is washed over our house with only mild, <laughs> mild repercussions. And I should note yeah. also our our downstairs neighbors. We live in a two flat. Our downstairs neighbors they have both had it as well. So we are a COVID house. <laughs> uh, so that's how things been on our end. Uh, you were you were up for recording last week, but I also had a big school project this last week that I had to work on. So. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I feel like I feel like last Sunday was it was one of those you know days where I was I was feeling pretty good. I was like everything's gonna be great. I feel I may feel good today, but there have definitely been some some days where it's just been you know feel like you're at the bottom of a pit. So um, yeah. And when we were talking about you know today in the back of my mind, uh, I was just kind of like, do I want to record? Do I do I just want to like you know spend Hattie's nap time sitting on the couch? You know huddled up in a blanket pretending the world doesn't exist like what, what's going to be sure. my demeanor and you know and, and ultimately it kind of just came down to the fact that and you, you even put this in a text to me asking me you know do you think it'll be a good distraction do you think you need that time for other things and you know i i knew even before you sent that text but it was just sort of they seeing it you know in print just seeing like good distraction like this is exactly what i want this is what yeah. i want to do um mm. The only the only thing about it was is I thought to myself, do I have time to watch the episode because I wasn't yep. prepared, you know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I made time, and you made time. I made time. We first made half time. while washing, yeah. First <laughs> half while washing dishes this morning, and then uh, yeah, finished it up here a little bit ago. But anyway, after that long, I, you know, I have to say, just interject. I have to say, watching part of this episode while while washing dishes, I think, is almost apropos in some ways because this is a very sudsy sort of episode, Ooh, you know, a very soap yes. opera kind of episode. It is. <laughs> yeah, um, but we are course, here after that long prelude. We are here to talk about trilogy part two. That is correct. Uh, it was uh, subtitled in the original working script for your love. Uh, this episode is directed by James Whitmore Jr., uh, a name that we, of course, are very familiar with. He's directed episodes such as Jimmy, Eight and a Half Months, Nuclear Family, uh, most recently, Elite for Lisa, Lee Harvey Oswald, Part 1 and 2, and Trilogy, Part 1. 
He'll also go on to do Trilogy Part 3, Memphis Melody, and Mirror Image. Uh, those are just uh, some of the 15 episodes that he would direct. Our writer on this episode is none other than Deborah Pratt, who, of course, is one of our favorites here at Project Quantum Leap. Um, she is responsible for crafting all three of these episodes um, and uh, responsible for um, 20 episodes in total, um, including you know fan favorites like Color of Truth, So Help Me God, um, Another Mother, also did Eight and a Half Months, um, Deliver Us from Evil. Uh, she'll go on to do Liberation and Revenge of the Evil Leaper after Trilogy. Um, the episode aired originally on November the 24th, 1992. Our leap date is June 14th, 1966. And Sam has leapt into Will Kinman, and we're back in Potterville, Louisiana. Yes, we are. Before I get into the TV guide description, maybe worth noting that when this originally aired on NBC, uh, it had aired in one night. Parts two and three were yeah. aired one night, kind of as a feature-length movie. Uh, rating was 9.3 million for, for this combined. It is also worth noting, we've been kind of like dragging on Quantum Leap's ratings in the last season. Uh, the last season, it did get moved to Tuesday nights, which at the time was apparently a death sentence, which is why the ratings tanked. But anyway, let's get into the, the TV guide description. Hmm. Sam bounds back into the jinx life of Abigail Fuller, played by Melora Hardin, two more times, but with one purpose— to save her life when she's again accused of murder. First, murder. he's her fiancé, and then years later, he's her defense attorney. And again, that covers parts one and parts two. Let's talk about what this show is called in other countries. Oh, we got some winners here in Italy. Italy comes in with the best one. Um, of course, like you noted, it was uh, called For Your Love. Uh, that's what it was called in the draft scripts, also in like a lot of the... Uh, the publications like the Quantum Leap book, that's what it was noted as. In France, it was called The Little Lost Heart, oh. which is that comes back into play in part three. I do appreciate that. Uh, in Quantum Leap, the, the publication A to Z, it was called For Your Love. And in Italy, it was called Trilogy 2, I Love a Witch. I love that the question mark is, it is, yeah, yeah. Yes. It's essential. I mean, it's uh, not quite So I Married an Axe Murderer. Right. But you know what? It's even better than So I Married an Axe Murderer. <laughs> and um, it's, um, and we should note, it was easy to watch this episode today. I think, I, I thought I had saw Matt Dale note this in, in the book. Maybe I'm thinking of another episode, but just watching it, I think... With the fact, we're just talking about part two. Yeah. The previously on goes on for so long. Yes. Yes, it does. Part two has to be technically the shortest episode of Quantum Leap. Uh, yeah, I would think so. And it moves, too. I mean, we'll talk more about that. But with the exception maybe of one scene where it kind of takes a breath, but, but in, a, in a very meaningful way, um, the episode moves really, really well, I, I think, as a result of that. Um, also, uh, Germany, it was uh, titled, which I think that this is, is quite apropos, um, The Crucible. Oh, I missed that. Yes, um, yeah. Which is, you know, something that uh, I wanted to talk about in particular with this episode, uh, uh, so much as that 
with the character of Abigail. Um, you, you know, it's interesting because that character name in, in um, both the real history of the Salem Witch Trials and then, of course, in Arthur Miller's uh, famous play, um, it's, it's interesting because the character gets a little turned on its ear in a way. Like, she's the victim of the witch hunt as opposed to being one of the perpetrators uh, of the of the witch hunt. Um, you know, another thing that I wanted to do, we don't often talk about this, but I think that it is worth noting, we, you know, we've talked about the ratings, and we've talked about the ratings being down, um, and Tuesdays being a bit of a death slot. And part of the reason um, for that, and part of the reason why we, we've talked about these ratings, um, has to do with the fact that uh, at the time, just to give some perspective, the highest rated hour-long television drama uh, for the 1992-93 season was Murder, She Wrote, which aired on CBS on Tuesday nights, and it was one of those shows that would have been opposite uh, a Quantum Leap, um, especially on a night like this when it aired as a two-parter. Uh, so for perspective, Murder, She Wrote was pulling in close to 18 million viewers. So nearly double the audience that Quantum Leap had, and and when you just kind of go down the list of like the top thirty shows, the you know the the thir- shows that are in thirtieth place are, are a tie with Wings and The Simpsons. Both had thirteen million regular viewers. So that's the bottom of the pack for the top thirty. So Quantum Leap wasn't even in that vicinity, unfortunately, at this particular point in time. I think they were there um, like in the fifties, right? Yeah. And, yeah, and and it's also I think it is also worth noting that NBC at that particular time was struggling big time with the ratings. In fact, in the top thirty, they only had two original uh, television programs, and they were both sitcoms: The Fresh Prince of Bel Air and Blossom, uh, or Wings. Excuse me, Wings was also NBC. Um, but but the other thing that's interesting about that is that they also had Unsolved Mysteries and the Monday Night Movie. But I'm not going to really count those so much because the, that was a different kind of television program compared to like a narrative television drama or sitcom, which you know Quantum Leap would have really been more fairly judged against. Um, I don't personally care about the ratings. I was watching the show. You were watching the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're watching the show, you know, some nearly 30 years later. But I think it is just kind of worth having that context. Now that you bring up Murder, She Wrote, I know someone who, when she was a kid, she was allowed to watch one hour of television a week. <laughs> oh, a man. week. So she alternated between Quantum Leap and Murder, She Wrote. Wow. I hope she didn't alternate too much during this season because we had quite a few two-parters. We did, yeah. Story arcs and... I think it was one of those things she finally got to go back years later and finish Quantum Leap, the episodes that she she missed, but... Yeah. Yeah. But let's let's leap on into this one, shall we? Yeah. So we get the leap in, which we discussed um, a little bit at the end uh, of of last week's episode, and it, it, it... Man... It is definitely a very different type of leap in for multiple reasons uh, for Quantum Leap, and I and I I don't recall having a feeling one way or the other. I think I just kind of accepted it, you know, when I was a kid. It's like, okay, Sam's left in, you know. I was probably titillated by it because I was like eleven years old. And, oh sure, know, yeah. What's this? Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> this is better than trying to watch Cinemax through the scrambled signal. Yeah. <laughs> after parents have gone to bed. Uh, and and I think that um, seeing it now, um, it really. It, it it does continue to be a bit unsettling, um, 
and, and, and there's there's definitely a theme and a through line for the characters that Sam inhabits over the course of these three episodes. But this episode in particular, it just takes on such a different type of relationship. You know, he's gone from being the father of this little girl to now being this young woman's lover um, within the span of just, uh, you know, a few moments for his, you know, awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not... It's not something that's ever really, I don't know, it, it, the subtext is there, and I feel like Sam and Al definitely pay it attention and pay it mind, but it's definitely not discussed overtly. No. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if this episode was produced today, you would have to address it. Yeah. And I don't, I, I feel like if you were to address it, in just like one 40 minute episode. Like that's what the episode becomes about. Right. Right. Or you have to have Sam make the choice to not to avoid being intimate with her at all cost. Right. And at the end of the day, we know, and, and we'll, we'll dive into this more probably next episode and, and, and maybe some additional like episodes like post post quantum leap TV episodes. Deborah Pratt wrote this episode specifically with the idea of introducing a character that could carry on Quantum Leap mm-hmm. after Sam Beckett's story had been told. Yeah. That being said, uh, it's a little weird, and I feel like th- they skirt around it because very early on in the episode, they kind of introduced this idea that Sam and Abigail, not just Sam and Will, or I'm sorry, not just Abigail and Will, Will, blah, 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 but Sam and <laughs> Abigail are deeply connected in a way that 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 trend that transcends and kind of goes around the fact that just moments ago he was this person's father figure. Yeah, it you know the the thing that I enjoy about this episode as a whole, and we'll get into specifics here in just a second, is that I think that this episode for the trilogy. It it, it, it it touches on some more fantastic elements of Quantum Leap that we have seen before in very overt manners um, or done more as a gag, you know? It's like, oh, the animals can see Al or, you know, whatever. But there's so much meaning behind some of the more fantastic moments that are alluded to, and they're done subtly. And when the, the one moment in particular that I'm thinking of that, that happens about halfway through the episode that kind of gets called out by Al, it's still it's just done so well that it doesn't feel like it's beating you over the head with it. And and because mm-hmm. of that, this episode, it, it feels in, in a lot of ways I think it's better scripted than the last episode. I, I, I think that part of Trilogy Part 1 being the setup, there's a lot of exposition naturally, there needs to be, but that this episode benefits from what we already know from Part 1 and yet, even if you saw this episode on its own, I think you could still, the story would still carry itself. Um, which is, which is, which is not always the case with, you know, multi-episode arcs, um, you know, of other television programs. So, yeah. Um, I feel like this episode benefits from being shorter and it, and it mm-hmm. has, and it has one very definite plot like there are no subplots it's, it's just very Abigail is going to be lynched 
in a couple days because the little boy has gone missing. Meanwhile, Sam is in love with Abigail to an yeah. unhealthy degree. Yeah. And that's pretty straightforward. So maybe yeah. there are two plots going on. Yeah, but I mean, the the one is kind of like your super plot, which sure, applies to yeah. the whole arc, you know what I mean? Like the relationship yeah. between Sam and Abigail. But yeah, I, I, I think that, that it's so difficult because in a way, you, when you look at the when you look at the fact that Sam, and I think that this is the thing that Pratt does well with the, with the writing, when you look at the fact that it's Sam kind of going through th- these different eras of this, you know, young girl, young woman's life, and you kind of divorce that from the idea that it's her father, it's, you know, this teenage boy uh, who has a little bit of a weird infatuation with an 11-year-old girl. You know what I mean? Like, when you when you think about it in terms of part one only, and then you, and then you judge part two right beside it, it does feel weird. But when you think of it more in terms of the whole arc of the three-parter, and we'll talk more about this next time around, and you view it through the lens of just Sam, I think it's a little bit easier to accept that he is, that he has these feelings for her. Now, the feelings themselves do feel to, again, touch more on some of that 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 fantastic element. You know that there's something other drawing them together. That it's not just like, oh, these two people meet and they, you know, they have a conversation, and they like one another, and this blossoms, and now they're in love. You know, it's, it, it there is something otherworldly almost about it, and the continued use of sort of those southern gothic tropes. Um, I think reinforces a, a, a sort of I don't know. There's there is a grotesque quality to the to, to trilogy to all three episodes, and I and, and I think that it celebrates that in in a uh, weird way without without ever seeming kitschy, without ever going too far. With you know, it's still quantum leap, but it's very much quantum leap through the lens of Southern Gothic, and it works really well. I agree. I took that note in the middle of the scene where Sam visits Laura. In the asylum, God, that's. A I took scene. the note like like this like. This is probably one of the the, the better, if not the best, episodes of this season so far, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. just like this is just like right in quantum leaps wheelhouse. This is obviously this kind of story is right in Deborah Pratt's wheelhouse, and just everything yeah. lines up. And also, I think a lot of it clicks into the nostalgia. Like I feel like. Southern Gothic was just kind of a theme in a lot of early 90s television. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, yeah, everything everything in this episode works really well. Yeah. Yeah. And so after we get the leap in, uh, we, as you just mentioned, we get a really extended last time on Quantum Leap that takes so long that you are kind of left wondering, like, man, did... Did, did we just watch like 10 minutes of an episode, you know, recap? Because mm-hmm. it, it does feel very extended. One thing that it does that I don't want to talk too much about right now, but I do want to keep in mind, is that it does draw focus to the setting of the fire specifically. And I think that the a lot of times when you see a last time on, it's basically, its sole purpose was okay, we know not every viewer tuned in last week to watch our episode, so we want you to know the broad strokes of last week so that you can jump in and feel like you can watch this episode like you didn't miss anything. To me, that is true of this last time on, right up until the last like big chunk in the house, 
there's an intent behind that that almost feels as though it's the director slash producer slash writer wanting to draw attention to specific things that are going that, that that are more than just saying, hey, remember last week, these are the three things you need to know before you watch this episode. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Same here. And I will, yeah. um, uh, as a little bit of a, a tangent aside here, I love watching previously on any, any TV show I watch, even if I, <laughs> even if I've completely seen the episode because the previously on, like, it's always going to like tell you like what you need to pay attention to in this next episode. And also sometimes producers, they'll sneak this in when they do a previously on, they will actually sneak in a deleted scene. Yeah. From the last episode, but it informs this second part. Yeah. So when I watch the previously on, I'm always looking for like that deleted scene or an alternate take or something kind of different that you didn't actually see in the first episode. Yeah. Well, was it, it uh, wasn't Arrested Development famous for every time they did a previously on or oh, yeah. next yeah. on that it was they were scenes that actually weren't in the episode at all? I think <laughs> always were, like I were, think next on was always the running gag and it was yeah. never actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. And, 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 and I think for, you know, 90s television in particular, yeah, it was an opportunity for them to, to feature extended scenes or, or whatever, you know, to, to, to help bring people up to speed a little bit, maybe. It's almost like when you see a trailer of a film and then you go see the film and there are certain bits and pieces that you saw in the trailer that aren't actually in the film. You're like, where the hell? What? Huh? What? Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, when we when we get back to the house, um, and you know Marie has of course just accosted uh, Will and Abigail for their their pre wedding night lovemaking. You two and, rabbits, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and now they're kind of they're they're post coital, and you know they're they're still pretty ravenous. And there is a specific moment that occurs that is something that you know happened in episode one in a very different manner. And that is Sam promising Abigail that he's never going to leave her. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, that Will Kinman will never, yeah. Right. I think he said specifically Will Kinman, yeah. And it's interesting because Abigail, she she needs it. You know, she's the one that's kind of like, that's like, tell me you'll never leave me or tell me, you know. And um, when you think about it, I mean, yeah, I mean, here's this, here's this young girl whose mother was committed uh, her father died saving her life. You, you know, she spent the past decade at least basically as an orphan. Mm-hmm. Um, she has to walk she, around this small town seeing the woman who set the fire. Right. Probably set the fire. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, the, the other thing that, that becomes apparent to us, you know, pretty soon after this uh, is that she has not been 100% sold on marrying Will. That there's almost this, it's out of necessity. You know, here's the, here's the, the boy that helped me off the roof that night, who's looked after me, who's, you know, clearly in love with me. So I'll just, you know, I'll do this. Um, so yeah, she needs that. She needs somebody to say, I'm never going to leave you. And of course, Sam, you know, promises that, um, we, I mean, we might as well just talk about Melora Harden right mm-hmm. now um, as Abigail. Uh, she's great. That said, I don't know that she necessarily gets a lot to do. I mean, she's constantly in this episode, but she doesn't necessarily have a lot to do. Do you know what I mean? 
I feel like I, I took this note early on, like when we find out that Purvis has gone missing and she keeps mm. fixating on her wedding. Like mm-hmm. at first it kind of bugged me that she kept going on and on about her wedding and what about her wedding. But then I was like, oh no, like, like she's, she's 22. Yeah. Like right. that's normal. Like yeah. I would have, you know, it would have been nice to, to see and like have some concern and her like jump into at like action mode. Like, Hey, let's go look for Purvis. But yeah. When you, when yeah. you're 22, I can buy into that selfishness of just being wrapped up in that. Well, um, and especially, and, and I think one of the reasons why I think that she's, she does such a wonderful job in the episode is because even the dialogue she later has with his parents there's there's just a wonderful glimpse into the like you said this is a 21 22 year old girl in a lot of ways mm-hmm. you know almost not yet a woman and I'm, I'm not talking about any sort of like you know sexual awakening or anything bullshit like that i'm just saying like you know in her her own mentality like she like i think the way that she relates to people and the fact that she spent so much time with this young boy for instance like she still sees herself as a child in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I agree with that assessment completely. I think that there's, you know, this is someone who's excited and because of what she experiences that night with Sam slash will, I think that that kind of propels that momentum forward of like, let's get married. Let's, I, you know, let's spend the rest of our lives together. Let, you know, let's forget about all the darkness, all the bad stuff. And that includes the disappearance of this boy and especially to be blamed for something like that on your wedding day. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I get that. Um, Worth noting, Melora Hardin, uh, she has been uh, in the business, if you will, for over 40 years. She is a child actor. She started acting when she was nine years old um, and did a couple of television shows, uh, Police Story and Thunder. Um, she did a bunch of television, um, including Magnum P.I. when she was very young. Uh, she would have been about 16 um, the thing that I always love to pull out about Melora Hardin that uh, some people might not realize is that she played Francis Baby Kellerman on the Dirty Dancing television show. Oh, yeah, that's right. There was a Dirty Dancing TV series, and Melora Hardin played Baby. Uh it lasted for 11 episodes. I don't believe all 11 episodes originally aired. They were shown later on, like, Lifetime or something like that. Oh, uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. remember. I remember Dirty Dancing, the TV show. I think I saw one episode. Um, and when I say I remember it, I remember that it existed. I don't remember anything else. <laughs> I remember that it existed. That's all I... Yes. That's all of I remember. Course. Oh, but, yep, that's that's her on the cover. And, oh, my gosh... Whoever got cast as as Patrick Swayze's counterpart, Patrick Cass Patrick Cassidy. Oh yeah. Ooh, yeah. He got that yeah. just based on that. He he looks kind of a little bit alike. Right. Yeah. Um. And of course, you know, most well known, uh, I think, for her uh, stint on The Office as Jan Levinson, Jan Levinson Gould originally. Um. And uh, did her and Michael fantastic. Scott end up getting together at the end of that? No 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 yeah. no. I, I I remember now who Michael Scott go with. Never mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the um, and of course she's done a lot of other stuff besides that. Yeah. Um, and, and most recently, um, Transparent, A Million Little Things, um, The Bold Type, and has a film that looks like coming out uh, in post production called The SHU. Um, again, yeah. I mean, she's great in this episode. Uh, I I just think that what she's able to do 
with a character that doesn't necessarily get a ton of levels. Um, even compared to like young Abigail in trilogy part one, uh, she, she, she does a wonderful job. And I think that honestly, in a lot of ways, it's okay that she doesn't have a ton to do because she gets even more to do, um, in part three. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. I go, yeah, she's kind of, she's kind of more the object of Sam's affection. Yeah. Than exactly. anything else. Yeah. And the object of everyone else's, you know, derision and, and blame the target. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about that. Well, before we do, I do want to make a comment about Sam walking through the streets of Potterville, uh, having a conversation with himself. He notices that he has the stutter, so we get some more psycho-synchronization with uh, the person he's leapt into. There's this wonderful moment when Al pops in. First of all, that purple jacket. Hell yeah. Love that jacket. Uh, And Al pops in, and he has this line uh, uh, calling Sam out, like, you're going to look cuckoo talking to yourself. And it's just such a great little moment because there's this meta quality to it of, like, well, that's what he does all the damn time with you. Mm -hmm. And now, like, you leap in and see him talking to himself, but it's like... uh, It's a a great little moment, and it's actually called out on tvtropes.com. It's mentioned uh, on a couple of other uh, uh, websites as well, but... Uh, I just thought that that was worth worth mentioning. He seems to have... Sam already seems to be kind of noticing these feelings that he has for Abigail. Uh, he's a little... I think he feels a little confused about him at this point. Al also points out that he knows how Sam leapt in. Like, what was happening when Sam leapt in. Which raises a lot of questions. Including, does well, Donna know? Uh, it, you know, it reminded me of... Uh in, uh, I can't remember the name of the episode now, Double Identity, first season, mm. Sam leaps in yeah. post, post-coitus, and Al has a crack in that episode about how he appeared in the waiting room left little to the imagination. Yeah. So yeah. I pictured something similar in this one. Actually, I was waiting for Al to say that line, and then I remembered, oh, no, no, that's Double Identity where he says that line. So, right. yes, uh, yes. It is interesting. You would think that, uh, especially given, and it's not, I think that it's something given a little bit more time. I'm sure that Deborah Pratt would have added something in, but it is interesting that we don't hear anything from Al via Will. Like there's no moments where Al is like, cause you know, we hear, we hear for instance, like, um, the records are, are shady, you know, Al, uh, Will wrote this letter, uh, in 1971. We know blah, blah, blah about, uh, Abigail's death and, and being lynched or whatever. But in a way you almost want to be like, well, yeah, but you've got Will right there in the waiting room with you. Like you could just ask Will what's been happening recently around town. Like you don't need the archives. You don't need the newspapers. You've got the sheriff's deputy right there. True. There, Al does have one line in the sheriff's office where he says that Will is not the clearest person they've ever had in the waiting room. Ah, how did I miss that? I must have missed that for whatever reason. Yeah. Well, there you go. That sums it up perfectly. Sure. Um, (laughs) And and going how we go in part three, I have a feeling that maybe Will, when he comes back, he remembers a little bit more than your average, Mm. than your average Mm -hmm. uh, bear, Leapy, coming back. Interesting. But we'll get into that. Yes, we will. Yes, but I, I love... That that street scene, uh, it, it's just really well done. And Al seeing the danger of Sam getting so getting yeah. so attached, because you, you could have seen Al being written in a different way, just like hey, you know, yeah, being his more I, lecherous womanizing self. 
And I, I like it. And I, you know, I think that, I think that it was so easy for a lot of other writers, wonderful writers, I'm not criticizing or calling anyone out. It was just so easy for a lot of other writers to pigeonhole Al that way. Luckily, in the hands of somebody like Deborah Pratt, I, first of all, I don't think she's interested in writing Al that way. And second of all, I think in the context of this episode and his relationship with Sam, like you said, it doesn't fit. It, it makes a lot of sense that this is how he would be. You know, he's concerned about Sam. It's not, you know, the other way around. Um, yeah, it, but, but it is interesting to see that. And of course, Al is calling it out like it's Will. You're, you know, this is Will. This isn't Sam. Um and, and, you know, something that we've talked so much about in the past, you know, couple of years that we've been doing the podcast, that there comes a time when we see more and more of, uh, you know, Sam and his, the people that he leaps into. We realize that he's getting little pieces of him. And, and we've called out moments going back even to like season one where we were like, oh, maybe this is an instance of that. Well, now it's explicitly being stated in mm-hmm. season five uh, that we're seeing that. So, um, yeah, I think... Uh, I don't know. I I, 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 I want to save some of the comments for later because there's there's where we go later with Sam's affections for Abigail and the way that he's handling all this and dealing with it as, as well as Al, I think, is more important. So let's get to the wedding. The wedding. I love the transition in there because at the end of the street scene, Al says, promise me you'll stay away from Abigail. And Sam more or less promises. And then the transition is to like something about... Staying away from Abigail is like asking the sun not to rise. Abigail had grown into a young, glorious woman. Yeah, yeah. Glorious woman. Oh, oh. Sam is so taken in. He is being pulled right into that southern gothic Well, yeah, and this is where the episode, like I said, it feels a little sudsy and a little soap opery. And and that's not a bad thing. Um, You know, it... I don't know. It's almost like there was an intent and some purpose in in Deborah Pratt's part to write it that way, specifically. Like, you know, chapter one of our story, we we are introduced to the mystery, the characters, you know, the the, the hot gothic South. Uh, Our second part is, you know, now we crank up the the romance, and this is about the love story. This, This episode is the love story. And, 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 and I, I think it just works really, really well. Uh, and I think it's, a, you know, in a way, you can look at trilogy in general as this wonderful writing exercise for a talented person like Deborah Pratt because she really pulls it off well. Um, of course, Sam makes the promise to stay away from Abigail, but Abigail does not make the same promise, even on her wedding day, mm-hmm. uh, because she bursts into the room uh, in her wedding dress. Uh, and, of course, we get the line, of course, I know it's bad luck. And, sure. man, I'll tell you what. It sure as hell was, because everything that happens after that moment is pretty shitty for her. <laughs> everything is all all downhill from there. Uh, Sheriff Bo. Sheriff Bo comes in. Yeah, promoted, Stephen pr- Lee. Promoted from deputy. He's just got that just the right amount of old age makeup to, to let us yep. know that time has passed. Hair has um, been, been grayed. Yeah. Uh, he comes in, wants to talk to Will, doesn't realize that Abigail is there, but says, hey, while you're here, this involves you. Uh, the Perkins boy has gone missing, and the parents are suspicious because she was babysitting them last night, and she was the last one apparently to to have seen him. Yeah, and the stakes are set. Yeah, um, and then we transition from there to uh, the mob scene at the sheriff's office. And it's hard not to notice the, you know, the two 
frankly, good old boys in their overalls with their rifles. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that watching that t- today, you know, in the context of, of where we are now, we are literally seeing men with assault rifles go to their state capitol houses and protest. You, you know, it's like, it, it, they, <laughs> I, I couldn't help. I couldn't yeah. help but look at that and just be like, oh, shit. You know, it's like. Have you seen the photos of the men with their assault rifles and one with a bazooka go oh, to a subway? Go to a subway. Wow! And someone wow. and someone got pictures of the guys in the subway. Uh, <sighs> I still can't believe subway is still a thing with all this going on. But anyway, yeah, I know, um, right? I know. Anywhere with yeah, open so it, it is interesting like to see. You know, and of course, in, in addition to that, that context of our time, like you look at it in the context of 1966, that wasn't out of place either, especially when you consider the things that were happening. You know, anytime a black man was arrested in the South and, 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 and the danger that that posed. And, and so I think that um, there's, a, there's a through line, you know, over these past 55 years since this episode was set uh, to when it aired to, to now today, um, it, it conjures up something. Um, that, that, that immediately is no pun intended and for lack of a better term triggering. And I think that, uh, in the context specifically of this episode, all that other stuff aside, it works really well. Like you said, the stakes, the stakes are raised. It's like, oh shit, you got, you got dudes with guns outside the sheriff's office. Like that's how, that's how poorly these people view Abigail. Mm -hmm. Um, the scene itself, uh, I, I feel like is very well done. Um, we get Wendy Roby, uh, who plays the mother. She was Nadine in Twin Peaks. She's phenomenal in that. Uh, she also had a guest spot on DS9. Uh, she also played the the mother, the woman, the character's name was just woman, in a movie called People Under the Stairs, which I saw when I was a kid. And I, for some reason, I love that movie. I don't know why. Mm. Um... And then you get Christopher Curry uh, as Mr. Takens and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of film and television credits uh, to his name uh, as well. But, um, I, I, yeah, I really like this scene. What do, what do you think? I I really enjoyed this scene mostly because, like, of the story that we learn about Purvis. Totally. Lone little boy, no friends, Mrs. Takens, the mom, does not, does not want to, to acknowledge or own that truth. Whereas, like, the dad is forced to acknowledge, like, yes, he had no friends. Yes, everything that Abigail is saying is the truth. Yeah. Um, and then you, you get some real drama and you get some real bites between Abigail and, and, and Mrs. Takens about, you know, you didn't, you know, you didn't have a mama and all. Yeah, there's just a lot of a lot of bad blood. Yeah. Abigail pointing out that apparently Miss Takens is always uh, is never at home to look after Purvis. And maybe that's part of the reason why Purvis felt like he needed to run away. Uh, I just yeah. Everything about this scene. I enjoy. Yeah. And it it reinforces that idea, too, that so many of the male figures in Abigail's life are you know, harbor these, these romantic feelings for her because even the seven year old boy is infatuated with her to the point that he's begging her not to get married the night, you know, the day before her wedding. Um, and then runs away when of course she's like, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting married. I'm going through with it. Um, 
it does it does give you know and it, and it, and it works so well too with her mother but it does give her this almost like spectral like quality like there's something there's just something otherworldly about Abigail that that, mm-hmm. that attracts people to her and, and either inspires this sort of you know infatuation or or this hatred like they, 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 no there's no one cool on Abigail yeah. well <laughs> and those two things always live so close to each other in the brain right infatuation and hatred yeah and this is something I was confused by in the scene it's a logistical thing Abigail is suspected because she is the last person who has seen Purvis. Mm-hmm. But then in this scene, they also suggest that after Abigail has left their house, that the mom went up and talked to Purvis. Mm. And I was kind of confused by that. Yeah, that is a good point. I mean, a, maybe it's one of those things that's best, you know, think about it too hard, but I guess, sure. I, guess you, I guess you could kind of say that I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And also, who babysits the night before their wedding? <laughs> I mean, I assume that there was a wedding rehearsal. Maybe? You maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I don't yeah, I well, it it would be interesting just thinking about the logistics of this wedding, you know, traditionally, sure. especially in the south, like, you know, the 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 woman's family would pay for the wedding, would kind of organize all that sort of stuff. Well, she has no family. You got to mm-hmm. imagine Marie is doing some of the work. She's clearly mm-hmm. recovered from when Sam hit her with the car. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> poor Marie. We have not poor forgotten. Marie. We have not forgotten. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, you do kind of have to wonder and, and like, you know, uh, Will's parents, we don't, we don't really see Will's parents. Um, you know, we don't see a lot of other, other family, especially with a large cast of characters. You have to think that there's some intent behind that, whether it was just like, well, we can't stuff all this in. We've got to, you know, make some cuts here or there. We can't really show the whole picture. Oh, sure. Um, that's not important. Let's move on. But, but I mean, it is a good question. You do, you do have to wonder. It's like, was this wedding planned for ages and ages and ages? Like, is this some sort of like, will pop the question like a month ago and they were like, all right, let's just go. Let's do this. Yeah. Doesn't seem like it. She's got this wedding dress. She's got you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, right. But then, uh, is it at the tail end of the scene where Sam looks out the window and he sees Lita? Yes. She's out there with the organizers, and oh, yep. oh, Mary Gordon Murray is so damn good. She really is. And the thing is, we talked about this last episode that she, especially for the first. Um, portion of part one she, you know you, you you can't help but sympathize with her in some ways and then man she kind of takes that turn and you're done sympathizing with her you you're like you are a villain horrible human being and you kind of think that by the end of part one if you just watch part one and you never watch part two or three you just would ex- accept that she died in the fire along with clayton but now you get to part two you find out a she's alive and b you, you, you're filled with these questions like what have the last 11 years been like for her uh-huh. and and she kind of tells Sam slash Will you know like she has nothing uh-huh. her husband's dead her son's dead she blames Abigail for all of that but she's again in a wonderful way when we first get that dialogue from her you almost sympathize with her uh-huh. it's just like oh man she's right and then once again she flips the switch and 
by the end of the episode, is basically responsible for the attempted lynching of mm-hmm. Abigail. Yeah. More so than these poor, you know, grieving parents for their missing son. Yeah. Can we talk about... I, I, I appreciate the weird detail that she... They tried to hang her, but then she got shot in the back. Yeah. And that's such a weird... Because usually, like, you don't put details like that in unless they come back and pay off later. Right. But that, that, that it, it's just a weird, odd detail. Like, at the yeah. end of the episode, we don't find out who was the one who was supposed to have shot her in the back. You know what I mean? Right. Right. I mean, I, I, I suppose you could... You know, maybe you could think that it's um, Mr. Takens, you know, because since he does show up with with the gun. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, because he's almost in a way like he's kind of riding the fence, not to skip oh, ahead. Yeah. Like he he doesn't seem like he's down with all this. No. Like I think he, yeah. he I think he's kind of like, ah, I'll let it happen if it happens. But I don't necessarily feel good about it. Maybe we shouldn't do it. I, you know, I just want my son. He's back. very wishwashy. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. It, 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 again, I think that a credit to the to the writing and to the casting um, that there is this tapestry of characters and everyone has you know pretty defined motivations and and there's a little depth. It's not just it's not just on the surface, uh, which is really nice because it's like of course you can kind of sympathize with these parents. Their son is missing. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I think that the interesting thing about the way that Abigail is portrayed throughout the course of these episodes is that for a Quantum Leap viewer, you're not necessarily fully on board with her either. It's not like she comes across as this downy innocent that, that you know, you're like, Sam has to save her. Yeah, that's his mission. But it's not like some of the other... It's not like Permanent Wave with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character where you're just sort of like, oh, the, the poor boy with the limp. Like, yeah, Sam's definitely got to save that kid. He's gotta, I don't know. <laughs> the thing is, it's like I feel a difference between part one and part two now that you bring this up. It's like part one, they kind of dangle the question out in front of you. Did sure. Abigail kill Mr. Fuller? Right. Did Abigail kill Violet? I don't think ever in this episode they seriously dangled the question, did Abigail actually have anything to do with Purvis's disappearance. Absolutely. No, you're, you're, too, you're totally right. Um, and it might have been interesting had they gone that way, but I don't know. It, it's, it's a, it would be a very hard stretch to make of like why you'd think Abigail would have anything to do with the disappearance of this little it boy. Do, yeah, it does seem like it, in the conversation that will slash Sam does end up having with Lita and with some of the comments that Abigail has made in defending herself prior to this too, it does seem like we're supposed to take as a truth that, uh, Abigail did not kill her son, did not kill her husband, had nothing to do with either one of those things. Obviously, like you're saying, did not take this boy or kill this boy or harm this boy. Um, and yet Lita injects doubt into so many other things uh, that I think we took for granted at the end of Trilogy Part 1, chiefly among them the setting of the fire. Mm-hmm. And she's very, like, even the way she plays it, where she's just like, I didn't set that fire. You know, she, but she's not going to tell Sam who did, but she's, but she's, but she knows she didn't set the fire. Yeah. I mean, but, remember, in the fire, we also see Laura. Yeah. So, I've always wondered if that's supposed to be a thing of, like, Teasing, like, well, maybe Lita didn't actually set the fire. Maybe it's yeah. some weird 
projection of Laura. I don't know. I mean, that's that's how I yeah. That's yeah. definitely how I kind of see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, not not to gloss over some of this stuff because it is really really good. But I do think that one of the main elements of this episode is the love story, and when Abigail. Um, kind of has her shares her truth with Sam about the about them making love the night before and about how like I was saying earlier she she's not completely on board with marrying Will that she wasn't even necessarily completely on board with having sex with Will that night but she was doing it and when they started off it was you know it was kind of weird and then all of a sudden, and she even uses the words, you know, there was like a flash, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it felt right. And, I mean, I, it, there is no better confirmation of the fact that, you know, in the, in the mind of God, time, fate, or whoever, that this is a moment in time that is supposed to happen. That now we are in, you know, this sort of time travel love story mm-hmm. territory sure. between the two of them. Um, that they are meant to be, that this, you know, that this could be subtitled quantum leap, a love story, you know, yeah. like that is that, that, that's where we're going with this. Um, I don't know. Do you think, do you think Abigail has any idea whatsoever that it went from, you know, that she was with Will and now she was with Sam, even if she doesn't specifically know that Sam is Sam? Uh, maybe on some deep subconscious level. I do. Yeah. Um, to be honest, and, and this even goes back to my very first viewing as a kid, I never liked the approach that that it was Sam and Abigail that had the deep connection. Um, I, I think I would have preferred it if Abigail and Will were deeply in love with each other or if Will was deeply in love with Abigail and it's just Sam's feelings are him taking on Will's energy. I mm-hmm. feel uh, I, I feel like the reason why they hit this thing so hard that it's Abigail and Sam that have the deep connection is a way to rationalize that when they when they have a child that this child is definitely Sam's and in no way Will's. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Because yeah. I, I guess maybe there's nothing. We don't. I mean, I, I guess is, this is true of any any or a lot of love stories. Like, I don't really see what quality there is about Abigail that Sam loves, other than the fact that she is a very attractive woman. And the script says he is supposed to be deeply in love with her. Maybe yes. you can make the argument that she has some features that are similar to Donna. And so he's kind of subconsciously picking up on that. Uh, you know, I, I took I've the, never, I, I, I sell that say I've never bought the deep connection between Abigail and Sam other than a way to justify that uh, Sammy Joe is definitely Sam's daughter. So I took it as, and, and I tend to honestly, especially when I'm you know when I'm watching a television show or a movie or, or a little little less on board with this with plays for whatever reason. But there are I feel like there are certain things I'll just I'll give 
over to a piece of entertainment in that suspension of disbelief. And so the conceit here with this episode is these two characters are meant to be together. I don't need any other justification or rationale for it whatsoever. Do you know what I mean? For me personally, it doesn't matter what she looks like. It doesn't matter if they've ever met before, had a conversation before, shared a cup of coffee, pet the same dog. I don't care. Like to me, if that's, if that's the conceit that Deborah Pratt wants to sell me and, and build the rest of this trilogy around, then I I'll buy it. Now, I think that in general with entertainment, that sometimes the fun thing to do is to ask the question, okay, what happens next? And that, of course, is not necessarily what this is about. But for instance, I think that How I Met Your Mother, I think, is a really good example of this, actually. In the very first episode of the series, full spoilers for How I Met Your Mother coming, by the way, so if you haven't seen it, skip forward about... The show's been off the air for six years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The very first episode, we know, we get the moment where uh, Ted and Robin look at each other across the bar, and it is sold by the way that it's shot, the, the narration, everything. These two people are supposed to be together. And then we spend, you know, the bulk of that first season learning all the reasons why they're not, then they do end up getting together. It doesn't last. They split up. Everything we get after that is basically a reason for them to not be together until the very, very, very end of the series when comes back around. He's older and widowed. He shows up at her doorstep at the urging of his kids because they're like, dude, you're in love with her. Go get her. You know, as far as we know, they live happily ever after. So for, the reason why I draw that comparison is is because in this episode, I'm sold the bar scene. I'm given the bar scene, basically, where these two people lock eyes. They're meant to be together. And that's it. That's all we get. We don't get any of the other stuff. So I think for me, because this episode isn't necessarily about that, kind of like what you were saying, I just, sure. I just buy it. I just go along for the ride with it. Yeah. And, I, and I go back to that sort of that otherworldly quality to it, the focus on some of these more fantastic elements. Which leads us perfectly, frankly, into the scene with Laura at the hospital. Sure. Because this scene is such a beautiful encapsulation, I think, of so many of the thematic elements of Trilogy and so many of the elements that, it, it, that Trilogy draws upon from, from other uh, sources, including that Southern Gothic uh, realm. Meg Foster is fantastic in the scene. I mean... What she does in this scene, looking at it as an actor watching it, it is it is an incredibly just beautiful piece of acting because she doesn't this isn't this isn't a scene where she's like, you know, running around the room, rending her garments and tearing out her hair and, and wailing and, and this is she 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 never moves. Literally the only thing we see her mouth barely moves when she's speaking. Her eyes move hardly at all. She has teardrops rolling from her eyes, but other than that, like she doesn't, and yet she does everything she needs to do and conveys everything she needs to convey so wonderfully. It's, it's sad. It's unsettling. It's, again, it's fantastic. It's almost mythical. Like there's almost something about this scene that is just like, it's, it's one of those scenes that, you know, you pull down from on high uh, you know that 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 you have to set within drama because it's it's like a touchstone where it's like oh my god we were in that scene and it, and I think it works really really well and of course ends with the revelation that Laura knows that Sam is there. 
Yes. And I love how, like, the subtlety in the scene of just, like, when Sam is confused by that and just how Dean Stockwell says in line, she knows you're not well. Yeah. Like, that could have been played so over the top and it's just, yeah, the way it's just, it's just understated and it's, it's a given. And for any, like, true fan of the series, like, we kind of already knew and suspected that because we know that mentally unstable people can see Sam for who he is and can see Al. So I appreciated and loved everything about the scene, including yeah. the end where uh, it doesn't become about Laura anymore, but it becomes about Sam's infatuation with Abigail and Sam and Al's argument where Al tries to give him the come to Jesus talk of just like, it's a leap like right. any other leap. You're doing this yep. because you're a hero. This is your job. Do it. It's a the the scene. Yeah, what happens is that the scene transitions from being this encapsulation of trilogy to being an encapsulation and deconstruction of the character of Sam Beckett, and it and it works so wonderfully that we have seen moments throughout the past four and a half seasons where you know Sam has a moment of weakness where he is only human, you know, going all the way back to like catch a falling star. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like we could talk all day long about, about what the meaning behind his actions in that episode are, but we've seen him falter before, but to have it called out in such a wonderful way. And for Al, I mean, Stockwell is on point in this episode, even though he's not in it as much as he is in other episodes for him, the way that he delivers, not only the, you know, she knows you're not will, but, when he says you're the hero he says it in such a way that it's not that's not entirely a good thing that he says it in a way that to me is like you're the hero but that there's a lot of sacrifice that comes with being the hero mm-hmm. and 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 it carries a nice weight and it, and it it lands so well and i i yeah i love this scene um man I mean, there's some really high quality moments. There are in this episode, yeah. and and, th- and this is no different. Yeah, this, and you have this given is probably the best. And you have given me a new appreciation for this entire trilogy. This trilogy is the "How I Met Your Mother" of Quantum Leap. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, Al is Barney. And yeah. <laughs> Yep. Sam is Ted. Uh, yeah. No, I, I think that, yeah, I think that, um, that, that, that struggle, seeing that struggle in Sam and then realizing that he's going to make the decision willfully, no pun intended, to <laughs> literally <laughs> run nice. to yeah. Abigail now. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet I don't think anything less of him for it, you know? It, uh, and it's the thing, it, it's, yeah. I know. I we've. Um, I, I can't remember her name. She used to comment on our page very frequently, and then she kind of dropped off. But I know when we've talked about leading up to this episode, uh, whenever it's like come up in like any of the comments on our Facebook page, uh, I know she felt very adamant that what Sam does in this episode is rape. Mm-hmm. Because Abigail thinks she's with Will and she is decidedly not with Will. And it's... Uh, 
it's it's very hard to look at this situation with like realistic terms yeah. as far as like you know rape and consent and things such as that because time travel creates so many weird you right. know we're playing uh, by a new set of rules playing by a new set of rules and also like you introduce like like the, like this star cross connection of like there is some deep connection that Abigail and Sam do have and Abigail is kind of she is no less said that that she felt something different when Sam leaped in yeah it's um I, I find it hard to like seriously like stay on it and like dwell on like is is Sam is he doing the right thing or not? Yeah. I think uh he is he is doing what he is compelled to do, whether it be by what whatever subconscious things are going on in his brain or whatever cosmic connection that there actually is between the two. Yeah. Or maybe think- it's just that very nice red and white sundress that <laughs> that Abigail is wearing when Sam bursts into the house. And her I'm just saying. frizzed out hair. I'm just saying, uh, yeah. Yeah. So for me, I think that in terms of that, I compare it to Honeymoon Express and to Catch a Falling Star. And here's why. In Honeymoon Express, you have a woman who is clearly in love with her husband and wants to have sex with her husband on their honeymoon. And Sam, because he is not in love with her feels that it would be wrong for him to have sex with her. So he doesn't. Uh, although, towards the end of the episode, it seems like maybe he's, you know, his, his, his reserves are weakening, if you will. Then you have Catch a Falling Star, where Sam uses who he has leapt into in order to sleep with someone that, as a young man, Sam, actual Sam, he was infatuated with, he uses who he has leapt into to sleep with this person. This leap is not either one of those because Sam is, again, in that star-crossed manner, in love with Abigail. And Abigail is clearly in love with Sam. And the reason why I say Sam and not Will is because she has even told us specifically earlier in the episode that when Sam leapt in, she felt that connection. Mm Mm-hmm. And ever since Sam has leapt in, she feels more connected to who she sees as Will than she has ever felt before. And I think, much like you said, subconsciously, she's aware that this is Sam. She doesn't know Sam. She doesn't see Sam. She doesn't... But she knows that this is somebody... It's like, it's like, it's like two souls, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like these two otherworldly things that can just touch and feel that there's something on the other side regardless of what they're wrapped up in. Uh And that's what we're seeing kind of on display here. So for me, I would always argue in the realm that it's not and the reasons why it's not and compare it to those other two situations where we have very distinct representations of what Sam would do given those situations. And this, to me, is not that. It's not either one of those. That is fair. A counter-argument has just popped into my head, but I'm going to save it for part three. I'm going to save it for part three of this episode. All right. So um, they do the deed, uh, and then uh, in in a rather weird fucking moment, the townspeople burst into Abigail's bedroom, haul her naked from the bed from Sam's arms, throw clothes at her, tell her to get dressed— Beat Sam over the head with a gun, leave him knocked out cold on the floor. So, yeah. 
and drag her from the house. So here's what I wrote. Sam dropped his pants. <laughs> but man, did he drop the ball on keeping Abigail safe. <laughs> at the yes, end of the at the end of the institution scene, Al tells him clearly, you need to go home and set up a guard at Abigail's door. Yeah. Sam goes home, has sex with her, falls asleep. Man. I mean, you just... Yeah. Yeah. What? Well... I mean, this, I mean, this is one of those... You know, this is where I, I do have one gripe in this episode. The only way this episode works is Sam doing something very stupid and out of character. Sure. Go home. You're overwhelmed. Have sex with her. Then set up the guard, you know, then set up the guard at the door. Do something to keep her safe. Don't fall asleep with her. I feel like, you know, the counterpoint I'll I'll make to that real quick is that if he goes and he has sex with her and then immediately, like, hops out of bed, puts on his jeans and is like, Abigail, I'm sorry, you have to stay here. I'm just going to go stand outside. It feels a little, like, that to me feels ickier than him going and having sex with her and falling asleep with her. You know what I mean? Sure. it starts to feel very unromantic. It starts to feel like all of a sudden, like, well, Sam had to get off in order to think clearly in this episode. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Fair, fair enough. Uh, yeah. But I yeah. will say that I think that it's a really good point you raise because Al does try to steer him in that direction. And in a way, because he gives in, he does face this sort of karmic retribution, if you will. Mm-hmm. Of now they both have to go through these incredibly like painful experiences. Um, you know, Abigail is clearly roughed up on the way mm-hmm. to the, the 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 lynching tree. Yeah, um, she's bruised, got a split lip. Like you know, they've they've roughed her up a bit. Um, Al is doing everything he can to get Sam up. Um, Sam gets up. We notice almost immediately he he no longer has the stutter. When I first saw this episode, and even after I knew what was coming, there's a part of me that just in my brain, I was like, well, he got hit in the head, and that's why he doesn't have the stutter anymore. But Sam says explicitly, he, as soon as he touched Abigail, Will was gone. Yeah. Yeah. And again, to me, never has quite worked for me. It's a justification so that next episode we know without any doubt Sammy Joe is fully Sam's daughter. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Very but, good point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so now we have the we have the climactic scene. Which is weird and unsettling, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is very visceral. There's no punches pulled in this one, honestly. Like, even when Sam rushes in to save the day and he's got, like, the baseball bat and he's clocking people with the bat and, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, going to town, like, teeing off Mm -hmm. on some of these folks, you know. Um, Al has has a wonderful moment where he basically saves their lives, you know, where he he yells out to them. He does it twice, right? Like, he does it the first Mm -hmm. time when he thinks the guy's about ready to punch Sam and Sam turns around and takes care of him. And then he does it again when they're almost shot uh, because Lita grabs the gun, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The gun is introduced, of course, by Mr. Takens, who is, like we said earlier, very conflicted about all this. Um it's 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 interesting it's an interesting moment um 
because I don't know you it's hard to feel for any of these people in this situation because of what they're doing to her and yet at the same time you do kind of feel just a little bit like you can understand why they're doing what they're doing if you're not on board with what they're doing yeah they're scared sure you know they they believe that this is happening uh, for a reason that they that they're you know exacting some sort of retribution, they're getting justice. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm I'm reading a lot lately about uh, neuroscience and how how much our subconscious brain actually controls more of our behavior than what we're willing to admit, and how much free will we actually have, and actually you know, uh, like mob rule and mob mentality, not enough to intelligently speak about it here, but I've been reading a, uh, more of that lately. And like, as I've been doing that, like watching this episode, I was like, Oh wow. Like you would like at one point in the episode, like Sam says, you're all good people. You're mm-hmm. not murderers, but it is very easy in this case to see how quote, good people can be turned to, can be turned to doing something like this. Right. And I'm sure there's something to be said. I don't know if I want to spend a lot of time on it because I I, uh, I, I I want to speak intelligently about it. I'm afraid I would end up saying something stupid. But I, I think if this episode were to be done today, I don't think she would be hanged because now we relate mm. correctly so, so much more to lynching being – a part of the painful history of how black people have been oppressed. Yeah. It's weird that she's, uh, yes, it's interesting that she's done in this way that I, you know, and yes, I agree with that. Like I said, I don't know if I, I want to go more about but that. That was on my mind as I was watching this episode. For me, especially knowing that Deborah Pratt is a person of color, I always felt like the intent and the parallel was meant to be with the Salem witch trial hangings because, mm-hmm. you know, all the victims of the witch trials were hanged. And so I felt like in this case, especially, I mean, at one point you've got, you know, the characters calling her, a, you know, New Orleans voodoo witch. Um, sure. You, you know, I, I think that I think that that, yes. You're, you're, you're not wrong. You're absolutely right. I think I just justified it in my mind as being that this is meant to be a parallel with that gotcha. as opposed to, to, to try to, you know, drudge anything else up. But yeah, I, I do wonder how it would be handled, you know, today. I, don't, I mean, especially yeah. right now. Yeah. I don't yeah. think, like I said, I, I'm, I'm not even sure like how much of a sub context that they even like gave thought about that when they done this episode. I think if they were to do this episode today, they would either choose a different way for the mob to have killed Abigail or they would have had to have addressed it in some way. Sure. Well, you know, another thing that I'll say, uh, is that I think, um, the, um, the fact that we have seen and, heard about other lynchings in the context of quantum leap itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in those cases that it had been a black victim, um, that, yeah, it, yeah, I, again, I'm kind of, I'm in the same boat as you. I don't want to speak too much on it because I feel like there are others that would be much more intelligent and eloquent about it than we can be. But I do think it's worth noting mm-hmm. that that is something that it's hard not to be aware of when you yeah. watch this episode. Yeah, Absolutely.
So, um, by the way, I just want to point out, I, I love pointing this out. Uh, we've seen a lot of familiar sets in this episode. The, uh, <laughs> the sheriff's office is the same. Uh, it's the same from uh, the diner scene from The Leap Back. It's the same from yep. the bar scene in Mirror Image. We are in the courtyard where Sam and Al are standing at the beginning of The Leap Back. Uh, this is their favorite. This is the tree. This is the tree that they're standing under during, yeah. uh, during the first moments of The Leap Back. I love pointing that stuff out. Anyway, um, but then we get this weird twist that creates so many problems, but it's brushed off of Al through Ziggy is able to do a perimeter lock on where they think Purvis probably is right now based on where he was found. And, yeah. and Sam makes the promise of first, if Purvis shows up dead, we'll turn Abigail over for trial. That's not enough for the mob. All right. If Purvis shows up dead, or if it's like within like so many hours, then Five I will hours. hand yeah. Then I will hand Abigail over to you. And then he says, "Oh, Purvis is over here. How do you know that? If he's there, does it matter? Well, for Purvis, no, he's probably safe now. But now, <laughs> does it not fucking look like Will and Abigail had something to do with Purvis come up missing? Right." Yeah, and only and only under threat of death will they tell you where Purvis is. Yeah, I yeah. mean, this yeah. episode could have just taken such turn up. He was in on it too. Hang them both. Right, right, right. Ah, uh, it's funny because yeah. you know time has a funny way of affecting our memories. But one thing that I uh, also thought for some reason in my head is that Will uh, gets shot and killed in this scene. Um. And and of course that doesn't happen. No. Um, but but for some reason in my brain, like that was uh, that was just what I expected. That's what I thought was coming. And so when it didn't happen, I was just sitting there like, oh man, huh, man, I really man. misremembered the end of this. <laughs> that, but you know, I I I would have really loved that just for the fact of at the end of part one, mm-hmm. Abigail loses her dad. Yeah. And at the end of part two, she loses Will. And I usually I abhor. When a character is killed off, yeah, just because it's obvious the writers don't know what to do with that character anymore, yeah. But I think that would be preferable to what we find out happened to Will in Part Three. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. rather have him been killed at the end of this episode than what we find out in Part Three. Yeah, I never yeah. thought about that, but yeah. Well, and speaking of part three, we we get a a wonderful sort of capstone on the soap opera, romantic, uh, you know, Southern Gothic vibe of this whole episode of this particular part with this uh, moment between Sam and Abigail, um, where Sam just, you know, lays it all out there, like just, and the thing is, is he's speaking in these very grand you know, metaphysical kind of terms where it's like Sam knows after years of leaping around through time and space, he knows after experiencing everything that he's experienced, that this is something special. And so he just makes this commitment. We, you know, right now, whatever happens right now in this moment, we belong to each other. Mm -hmm. Knowing, sensing most likely that he's getting ready to leap. Um, They share a kiss and then he does indeed leap out. Mm Mm-hmm. He's sitting there in a chair with his glasses, reading newspaper. 
it doesn't take long to figure out that he's back in Potterville, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. He stands up, looks in the mirror, and who should we see but good old W.K. Stratton in some old age makeup looking back at us mm-hmm. as, uh, as, as the lawyer. Yeah. Stanton. Which you forgot, he, he shows up. In, in, the, in the hanging scene, we forgot to mention that. Yeah, that, yeah he comes. Yeah. Uh, he shows up to save the day, but then he ends up getting knocked out. Which it, it, it's yeah. great to reintroduce that character. Yes. So that we definitely know who he is when it comes around to to part three. And along with along with um, uh, 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 the, the 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 sheriff's deputy, um, one of the only characters to recur throughout all three sure. parts. Yeah, um, where where is Bo in all of this? I know, right? Is Bo just sitting there looking out the window, watching it all happen? Like, well, you she know, had it coming sooner or later. You know, the, <laughs> the way as I was watching this episode this morning, my justification was is that the mob knew that Bo would not be a part of this. Yeah. So in some way, they went and incapacitated Bo first, or or some or some contingent went and took care of Bo so that he couldn't interfere, and now right. they're here. To hang Abigail. Either that, or knowing that it's a small town, they're, they're like, well, look, Sheriff will be home and in bed by blah, blah, blah. Will's the only other one we got to worry about. Like, you know, we'll just take her out in the middle of the night. Sheriff will never know until the next morning when he finds her hanging in the tree. Can't that's, believe his words just came out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's you know. fair. Or, or Bo just doesn't want to fight it, so he just sits at home and just pretends like mm-hmm. he doesn't. Just pretends like he doesn't know what's going on. Because we do get the sense that Bo is uncomfortable around With Abigail. Abigail. Yeah. 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 Um, and even in the, you know, even in part one, there are moments that he shares with Clayton, mm-hmm. Sam slash Clayton, where, yeah, he, he seems a little gray. Yeah. As opposed to being like, Bo's a good guy. He's on the side of Sam and whatever Sam is fighting for. Like, mm-hmm. Bo seems to be kind of on Bo's side. So I can see that, too. Mm-hmm. I can see that, too, where he goes home, he eats his steak dinner, he drinks his scotch, hangs up his gun belt, sits there on the edge of the bed. It's kind of like... Whatever yeah, happens, I know happens. it's coming, but yeah. And then yeah. he goes to sleep. Mm. But yeah, so uh, Sam leaps in to uh, Mr. Stratton, looks in the mirror, and then Mrs. Stratton shows up. Oh, she shows up, all right. Yeah, and tonight, <laughs> tonight she is Jane Fonda and Butterfield 8, and that's actually a mistake. Right. But could be a writer's mistake, could be a character's mistake. We'll get into that next time, but yeah. Yeah, she, needless to say, she's going to rock his world. She, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think a, a wonderful moment, we'll talk a little bit more about it next time, though, is there's this wonderful moment where Sam realizes like where he is and who he is. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's handled really, really well. And then, of course, we get the comedic moment to follow up on that. And I think it's actually really smart. I think it's really smart to have that comedic moment because this episode, every the journey that it takes you on, especially with Sam, to kind of end it in like this moment where you're like, "Oh boy, yeah." It's it's you you feel the oh boy. It's nice. Sure, I, I, I kind of like it actually. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a nice twist. Um, I can make the argument that it's a little mean because it's kind of like playing on the joke that oh, a fat old person wants to have sex, yep. Yep. and that's yep. a yep. sin, but. Yep. I'm going to allow it because we learned some things about Mrs. Stratton in the next episode that she is a decidedly unlikable person. So, yeah, eh, 
Yeah. No, I'm with you on that one, too. I thought the same thing. I, as I was watching it, there was a part of me that was just sort of like, ah. But then as I thought about it in hindsight, I was like, no, oh, okay. Yeah. I'll but there's, uh, because I, the trilogy episodes is like, this one of the episodes that I first rewatched when I got the Blu-ray set a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment early on in part three that involves Mrs. Stratton that when I rewatched the episode a couple of years ago, it took my breath away of like, oh, they went to some place they did not need to go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but we'll save that for part three. Yes, we will. A um, couple of final thoughts uh, that aren't my own. Uh, this episode is one that decidedly divided the fan base, uh, and one only needs to take a look at the message board um, over at Al's place to see um, that that while you know you have a good, a good portion of the audience saying that it's excellent, there's still a sizable amount of, of the audience that that just do not like it at all. Um, you know, a good like twenty percent or so that that put it kind of below the average mark. Um, the uh, the comments are, are enlightening as well, as far as what people didn't like, what they, you know, what they did like. Of course, one of the things that people touch upon uh, almost immediately is the the idea of Sam leaping from her father to her lover. Um, but again, I think that there's something about that that really just plays into that Southern Gothic aspect that we've been talking about over and over and over again, and this idea that it's a little bit off, that there's something a little bit grotesque about this, and that you know, I think that ultimately, with where we're going to get by the end of, of part three, is that it shows us something. And and that while you're not wrong in saying that you know the thrust of the episode is is to basically provide us with an heir, if you will, for mm-hmm. Sam's adventures, that, yeah. that there is more to it than that. Um, there's also a lot of people that really love it. Um, that you know that the um, the scene with with Laura uh, and then the aftermath with Alan Sam is something that gets talked about a lot. There are a lot of people that love the romantic aspect of it too. They like the fact that you know that there's this love story in the middle of it. Um, our buddy over at the MacGyver Project, um, you know, he, again, he, he really enjoys the whole trilogy. He talks about it as, as a whole thing. He doesn't divide each episode up. Um, but, you know, certainly worth taking a look at, at what he has to say. Um, for me personally, I, I, yeah, I think that this is a fantastic episode, and I think that there are elements of this episode uh, that are among the highest of highs in, in, mm-hmm. in you know, the, the canon of Quantum Leap. Um, you know, the scene at the, the mental hospital is, is a standout for sure. Um, it's, it's got me very much looking forward to, to part three. Uh, it's, it's got me wanting to do something that quite frankly, over the course of this podcast, I very rarely wanted to do. Um, and not because I don't love watching quantum leap, but because I, I tend to save the episode until right before we're going to record either the night before or, or the morning of, uh, I want to watch part three right now. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I don't often find myself wanting to do. Um, so, so I, that to me is, is a hallmark that it's, that's a good episode. I think Scott is great in this. I think Dean is fantastic. I think Melora Hardin does a wonderful job. Um, yeah, the cast is, the cast is great. And, and Deborah Pratt has, has just, you know, as the kids say these days has written a banger of an episode. So she has, uh, yeah. I dig it. What about you? Uh, yeah, this is definitely one of my top, Episodes. I don't. I don't know if it's fair to judge each part on its own. Like you know, thinking mm-hmm. of it as a trilogy, um, definitely high highlight of the fifth season and highlight overall 
of the entire series. We're going to have a whole lot more to talk about. We'll have to decide how much we want to unpack in the next episode or beyond future episodes because we are going to meet a new character next episode that was supposed to have been the heir of, of Quantum Leap. And uh, there's a sordid history in that of, of where of where that character goes, where Deborah Pratt had in mind for the character goes, where it ultimately didn't go because of Don Belisario interfering. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm looking yeah. forward to talking about all of that. Is the honking on my end or your end? It's on your end. Ah, damn it! All right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I want to, right before we sign off, I do want to throw this out there that if uh, you've been uh, listening to these past few episodes, I have mentioned um, that there is a, a bracket um, uh, for the best episodes of Quantum Leap over on the Quantum Leap subreddit. Um, in my opinion, it has mostly fallen apart. Uh, in what kind of world does shock theater beat Color of Truth? I don't know. The kind of world where people who don't really know Quantum Leap are voting? No, I'm kidding. I'm not really going to throw that much shade. But it is still shocking to me. <laughs> Uh, I cannot, I can't abide by that. I also cannot abide the fact that the leap back beats Goodnight Dear Heart. That's just bullshit. Uh, however, I will say that as of right now, the uh, we're, we're almost down to uh, our Elite Eight. Um, we've got Leap Home Part 1 going up against Shock Theater. Leap Home Part 2 going up against Jimmy. Mirror Image going up against Elite Back. And then to decide our final two in the Elite Eight, you've got MIA versus Raped. MIA is currently winning, rightfully so. And Honeymoon Express going up against Elite for Lisa. I really hope Honeymoon Express wins, but I'm sure it won't. So go vote, play along. It should be fun. At this point, I think you got to go with Leap Home Part Two. Actually, is the winner of what's remaining because I think that it's probably the best episode out of that field. Maybe MIA if it makes it. I mean, so. if, if if it doesn't come down to MIA versus the Leap Home Part One or the Leap Home Part Two, just pack it up and go home. What are you even doing? Right. You know, I have a feeling. I have a feeling Leap Home Part One is going to be the one that wins. And it should. I mean, I have yeah. no problem with that. I, 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 as I've gotten older, I love Leap Home Part One. It's hard for me to decide. Ask me on any given day, I might change my mind. But just looking back, I think Part Two might be the the, the stronger episode. I just think, from a production standpoint, the yeah. Leap Home Part Two of like what the production team had to do to reproduce Vietnam in California. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and whereas Leap Home Part One is such a wonderful love letter to the show and to the fans, like it just feels like it just feels like home, no pun intended. But like it feels this wonderful to this home quality to it. The the cool thing is is that you could do Leap Home Part Two without Leap Home Part One, and it still stands on its own as an episode. The stakes it would are still, still there, be everything, yeah. you know. Um, so yeah, I just uh, I don't know. That's 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 me talking. Go over, visit, hang out, talk about Quantum Leap, vote on this thing. But uh, Go in check meantime. it out. So yeah, speaking of, we should say uh, we've had a lot of uh, people like comment on our page and in our group, and uh, we have been slow to respond. It's not that we don't love you; it's just that everything that we said at the top of the episode, we uh, we are not as quick to respond on Facebook as we should. But if you've been showing the love in the group, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. We love you. We're going to get better at it. Hopefully soon. Yes, we are. And yes, with all of our are. struggles going on. Um, if you are still taking time to listen to us while all this is going on, uh, we, we really appreciate it. And we hope that we are, we are able to give you a little a bit of a small respite while all this is going on. And we have a visitor. Hello. <laughs> hi. Hattie, Hattie woke up from her nap a little early. She wanted oh, to come say hi. Yeah. Hattie, Harrison, say, oh boy. I, I just got a message from Betsy. Harrison is off to a late start for his nap time. Yeah. So, Aww. Hello. How are you doing? 
Hi. I only see her like from like the eyes up here. Oh. Hi. How you doing? Did, did you have a good nap? Yeah. She's like. She she wants some time with mommy. She's like. Speaking of which, happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Yes, we are recording on Mother's Day. Our mother, our wives, the heroes, the mothers, letting their their two hubbies record a podcast episode. Do something silly and goofy because everyone needs it right now. Everyone needs it. So, yeah, hope you enjoy this episode. We're going to leap out of here. We'll see you, I'm going to say next time. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> we will see you uh, next time when we uh, when we wrap up talking about the trilogy. Thank you all very much. Take care of yourselves and one another. Stay safe. Stay well. And uh, who knows? By the time we get this next episode out, maybe we uh, maybe we won't be shelter in place. Maybe who we'll see. Who I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Have a good week, everyone. Take care. Bye bye. I want to stay